0: It gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, El Fryer, a friend and colleague now many, many years um, who has spoken here before. Uh, And when I know he's in London, uh, I always ask him to give us an update on uh, Trump and trade or or things Canadian. Uh, His expertise ranges uh, far and wide. Uh, His university has a, a study abroad program. Uh, both in London and Paris, and, and uh, Earl manages to uh, be one of the professors there uh, most years. Uh, currently in Paris, so he's come over on the Eurostar this morning uh, and is staying a couple of days, and then we'll go back to Paris. Mm-hmm. Worst places uh, to go back to, at least. I don't know what it's like there at the uh, the weekends these days. <laughs> So, just to give him his uh, official introduction, uh, Earl Fryer is Emeritus Professor of Political Science and, in, and uh, an Endowed Professor of Canadian Studies at Brigham, uh, Brigham Young University. Uh, he's also a former Special Assistant in the Office of the US Trade Representative and former President of the Association of Canadian Studies in the United States. He served as a Fulbright professor in Canada, Finland, and France. He's written extensively on North American relations at both the national and the subnational level, uh, including uh, a recent article in a journal that we look after here at the Institute, the London Journal of Canadian Studies, published by UCL Press. Uh, I won't attempt to list all of the many books and articles and book chapters uh, he's written, but I will mention uh, one of his, uh, I think his most recent book, uh, Revitalizing Governance, Restoring Prosperity, and Restructuring Foreign Affairs, Uh, The Pathway to a Renaissance uh, America, uh, which deals with domestic and international challenges uh, confronting the United States. And he's a very frequent uh, op-ed writer, opinion writer, commentator, as well as being a distinguished <laughs> academic. So please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Earl Fry, talking about Trump and NAFTA II, US trade relations with Canada and Mexico.
1: Thank you very much, uh Tony's been kind yeah. enough to invite me a few times here, and I appreciate that very much. I, as you mentioned, I'm living in Paris. I'm doing a research project on uh, the strengths and challenges of the EU, the strengths and challenges of the U.S., the strengths and challenges of the transatlantic relationship, and then asking the very provocative question, are we seeing almost an inevitable shift in... Uh, political, strategic, and economic power away from the North Atlantic region to Asia. And I have some research money, and uh, Paris is a good place to do it. Uh, and by the way, this has been the most lovely February in Paris that I can remember, and I've lived in Paris for many, many decades. Uh, uh, just brilliant sunshine, and even this morning, brilliant sunshine. It's, it's been uh, lovely. Of course, weekends, you know, we have the yellow vest. Uh, demonstrations going on which sort of spice things up uh, a little bit but that's that's how paris is um, and uh, so anyway it's very interesting uh to uh, to watch what's going on on both sides of the atlantic so without further ado let me let me get started on this and i'll go on for about 45 minutes and uh, above all we want to have your questions uh you know, in terms of the historical background of, uh, of NAFTA, NAFTA II, what President Trump is calling the USMCA, you know, U.S.-Mexican-Canadian uh, Agreement, uh, we go back to all the way to 1854 uh, when we had sort of free trade between Canada, which was not Canada per se as a sovereign country, but part of British North America then, and the United States. And then it was abrogated by the United States after our civil war, feeling that the British were not treating us well in in economic uh, relations. And so we abrogated that agreement. Uh, Canada tried to revive it as it became sort of uh, uh, almost independent, not in foreign policy, not in defense policy, but in many other ways independent under Sir John A. MacDonald. And he wanted to have free trade with the United States, but the U.S. refused again. And that's why McDonald turned towards the national policy, which was protectionist. And keep in mind the United States itself, as it became a nation, and Alexander Hamilton as our first Treasury Secretary, we also pursued a, a, a protectionist policy, infant industries uh, policy. So the Canadians tried to have free trade with the U.S., and we said no. As for Mexico, Mexico was having tough times with the U.S., we had this war, 46 to 48. Um, As a result of that war, a few things after that, the Gadsden Purchase and whatever, uh, the United States stripped Mexico of half of its territory. Um, You know, where I live in Utah today was once part of Mexico. Uh, So much of the western part of the U.S. used to be a part of of Mexico. So you had Benito Juarez, or maybe it was Porfirio Diaz. One of them said, you know, poor Mexico so far from God and so close to the United States. And, uh, And that would go on for a long, long time. Finally, in 1911, (coughs) the Canadians found a U.S. president that was willing to renew free trade. Uh, Taft had spent his summers along the St. Lawrence River, like Canada, and he was willing to do it, and the uh, congressional leadership was willing to do it. (coughs) And so the Canadians said, let's do it. But the election had to be held, what we call the free trade election of 1911, and the Liberals lost. And the conservatives came to power. And the conservatives were against the free trade agreement saying, we're turning our back on the United Kingdom, on the British Empire. We shouldn't be doing this. And so we didn't get free trade then. And then at the end of World War II, as we moved forward, remember during World War II, there was hardly a border between the United States and Canada. It was really open, you know, the construction of the Alaska um, Highway. And uh, so the feeling was maybe we can do free trade. And uh, in this case, the Canadian leader uh, he got cold feet and backed out, even though we had had secret negotiations with the State Department in, in Washington on doing free trade. Basically, he felt that, uh, again, he, his legacy would be turn his back on the, on the British Empire. And so we didn't do it then. Uh, and finally... You know, we we get it done in 88. It becomes the, uh, it goes into effect in 89. I was a little part of it. I went in, in the early 80s in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. I had just written a book on the politics of international investment. And so the Council on Foreign Relations phoned me and said would you be interested in applying for a fellowship and I talked to you know, my university people and said yeah let's, let's do it and so uh, I applied and I was accepted and so I went in not as a political appointee uh, but as a uh, international affairs fellow into the office of the U.S. Trade Representative in 1983 now this is during the Reagan administration and Bill Brock a former uh, Republican senator from Tennessee was my boss and the, we, soon after I came in, even though I was supposed to work on investment policy, knowing my expertise on Canada, I was asked to sort of, you know, work on the Canadian issues, as well as Japanese issues. I'm not quite sure why I got Japan.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: and in December of that year of 83, we began negotiations with Canada at USTR on doing uh, a sectoral free trade agreement, not a full agreement, but looking at sectors that we can match. And over time, we found we had trouble matching. You know, sometimes the Canadian sector wanted to do it, but the counterpart in the U.S. did not want to do it. And also, you know, the feeling is, unless it's somewhat comprehensive, it would not be GATTable, which, remember, before the WTO, we had GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And so we basically had to put that on hold for a while. But we had some very, very interesting discussions for several months with our Canadian counterparts. I'll we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later on. But then we came back when Mulrooney came in as the prime minister, and he had a very special relationship with Reagan. Remember, it was Mulrooney that actually spoke at Reagan's uh, funeral. And he also spoke recently at uh, President Bush I's uh, funeral. So, you know, a special relationship was built up. Bush One was, the, of uh, course, at the time, uh, the vice president to... Uh, to President uh, Reagan. And so we finally got it done. You know, went into effect uh, in 89. They had to have another free trade election in Canada. Uh, and this time it passed. Now, the Conservatives lost some seats, but uh, they still had a majority. And so we could do the free trade agreement between the United States and Canada, which was very important, obviously the most important agreement for both countries at that time. Up to that time, we really didn't have much in free trade agreements. We had one with Israel. But it was somewhat more symbolic than in terms of the actual volume of trade going on between uh, Israel and the U.S. And then the uh, Mexican stepped forward and said, well, we would like to sort of do that. And that sort of floored a lot of people because here we've had such a, a tense relationship with uh, Mexico. But basically the decision was made uh, by the Mexican administration saying, hey, look it. You know, we can be sort of the top of the developing countries or maybe we can move into the developed Start near the bottom, but we can make our way up. And so we finally did NAFTA. Uh, Got it done in 93, went into effect in 94, to be put into effect over 15 years. And so that made it a trilateral agreement, trilateral agreement. And then uh, uh, Trump comes into office. He says NAFTA is the worst agreement in the world, as he tends to, you know, pretty, you know, hyperbole is one of his uh, strong marks, I guess I would say. And uh, so we began the negotiations last, uh, in 2017, got them done. 2018, an agreement was signed down in Argentina uh, at the uh, G20 meetings last, uh, last fall. And now we're just waiting to see if it can be ratified. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. So this is NAFTA. I'll call it NAFTA two again. Uh, Trump likes to call it the USMCA. The Canadians don't like it. The Mexicans don't like it. But they can call it whatever they want. So that's a historical background. Now, Trump, you know, he's pretty tough on these sorts of agreements. As we said, he didn't like the the NAFTA the worst in the world. And he calls the USMCA among the best in the world, even though there was only slight changes uh, between the two. Canada, meanwhile, has its own free trade agreement with uh, the EU, uh, the CETA. Mexico had a free trade agreement with uh, the EU beginning in 2000. Now it's being modernized, and they basically have agreed to a new agreement. They're just, you know, putting the, getting the legal niceties out of the way, and that will go into effect very soon. Whereas the U.S. does not have a free trade agreement uh, with the EU. We've had the negotiations for several years for the TTIP. I've been in Europe many times lecturing on the possibilities of an agreement between the U.S. and the EU. Of course, we didn't get it. Uh, and uh, Trump, has t- uh, Trump has talked about doing something new, but he's, he's not very uh, pro-EU, to say the least. Uh, and so that one is really on the back burner. We did have the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement done under President Obama, but not ratified uh, by uh, Congress. And then uh, during the first week that Trump was in office, he said, no, we're not going to do it. You know, he basically tore it up. US is not going to participate, which from my vantage point was not the thing that we should have been doing. It involves many of our major trading partners. It did not include China but the incentive was there for China to join if it were willing to follow the rules of the game of the TPP. So I really did not understand why President Trump wanted to uh, not go ahead with it, but that's sort of his nature. So we do not have the TPP, although the other nations uh, involved have now joined in a modified TPP, the comprehensive uh, progressive TPP. So it's gone into effect without the U.S., The WTO is there as sort of a fallback. If we do not get NAFTA II, then we probably revert back to the WTO. Some say, could we do the Canada-US FTA? Well, it's up in the air. But the WTO is there; it includes most of the major nations in the world. Uh, Trump doesn't like the WTO either, Uh, but it's there, you know, in the background, uh, where most nations uh, subscribe to the WTO, and of course, China is a member of the WTO. And then, of course, here in uh, in Europe, you have your own uh, uh, things going on uh, with the Brexit. Who knows how that's going to turn out and you know what's going to happen in terms of uh, UK uh, participation uh, with the EU, whatever mm-hmm. type of plan might be there. So lots of things going on in terms of trade agreements around the world. Uh, in terms of the U.S., I don't want to go into this in much detail, but what I can tell you is there's not Trade between the United States and Canada is pretty well balanced. Canada has somewhat of a surplus in goods. We have a big surplus in, in services. Overall, we actually have a surplus. President Trump doesn't talk about that, but we actually do have a surplus in terms of trading goods and services. Mexico, we do have a uh, fairly significant deficit in uh, goods, but not anywhere in the range of the deficit that we have uh, in goods with China. You know, they're not even the same ballpark. So that's how it is. Uh, Canada is very dependent on linkages to the United States. Notice I put here about 30% of GDP linked into trade, investment, and tourism linkages to the U.S. It's very important to have access to the U.S. market for Canadians. And it's about the same for the Mexicans as well. As things have really tightened up after NAFTA went into effect in terms of the linkages going on, in terms of trade, services, tourism... Uh, investment, very, very significant linkages between Mexico and Canada, economic linkages with the U.S. And uh, energy is very, very important. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, But these are three nations which can really lead the world uh, in energy um, if they get their acts together. And I'll, I'll come back to that. Whereas for the u s you know we 're not that dependent on trade with Canada and the u s ours Canada and Mexico, although i 'm going to argue and, and President Trump doesn 't recognize that we have a lot of jobs, a lot of jobs at stake in terms of our linkages to both Canada and mexico and i 'll come back to that so that 's what he, basically when President Trump talks about an imbalance uh, not really that much of an imbalance uh, what NAFTA two changes from NAFTA one It basically, we're going up for auto and auto parts much more North American content, well, from 62.5% to 75%. By 2023, 40 to 45% of auto production must come from workers that make at least $16 an hour. A lot of this onus would be on Mexico to bring uh, the uh, wages in the sector up. Uh, U.S. will get... uh, greater penetration on the Canadian dairy sector, but notice that 3.6%. You know, President Trump said this is a great victory, and you know, it looks good for those voters in Wisconsin and you know, a few other border states, but uh, it's not really going to be that much of a change. Uh, the Canadians did get a victory on Chapter 11 investor state uh, dispute settlement. Uh, generally, the U.S. companies did very well in the NAFTA Chapter 11. Many American politicians are not happy with Trump giving... Up on uh, chapter 11 uh, and some want to see that rene- renegotiated but that was a that was a canadian win and a win for mexico too uh, even though mexico has not had the uh, defeats in chapter 11 to the degree that canada has and then chapter 19 was also a victory uh, particularly for the canadians where when it comes to anti-dumping countervailing duty and other related cases you still will have a panel that will look at it instead of just relying on u.s courts or the congress and the Canadians felt this was very, very important. It will be important to the Mexicans as well, but not quite as as important. We've had some modernization of the digital economy, which was necessary. There's no doubt about that. And some, you know, intellectual property protection and copyright protection. That's probably not bad, but it's a mixed bag. And particularly when you get to the pharmaceutical sector, I just think it helps the big U.S. pharmaceutical companies to get a bigger share makes it more difficult to use the generics and I don't consider that to be a great victory but nonetheless that was done but the major victory was and we'll see if this lasts is that at least we can we did not have NAFTA abrogated you know with NAFTA too basically we continue to have uh, the three country uh, trade accord if it gets rattled by in the three countries and that's the big question I want to I want to talk about that a little bit. Negotiations and ratification, as I said, began in August 17 in Washington, ended in November 18, almost derailed several times, which sort of goes along with Trump's notion of the art mm-hmm. of the deal, you know, letting to walk away. Uh, Trump preferred two separate bilateral courts. I've written on this. He would rather have had a bilateral with Canada, a bilateral with Mexico, separate one. Got, came close. The Mexicans bit at this one. A little bit, but the Canadians basically then was able to shift it back to trilateral. Uh, Trump, uh, Trump's notion was you work with weaker nations, and because you're the stronger nation, you'll get more concessions. All right, so that's why he likes these bilaterals instead of multilateral regional agreements. And but that would have brought us back to this the scepter of a scepter scepter of a uh, of a hub and spoke. So if we had a separate agreement with Canada, a separate agreement with Mexico, then if you look at future investment coming into North America, a lot of that would go to the U.S. because the U.S. would have the access to both the northern and the southern markets. And that was a problem. Mulroney saw that as a problem way back in the 80s and in the early 90s with the initial NAFTA negotiations. So fortunately, that did not work out. Yeah, you know, we didn't go to the two separate uh, bilateral accords, and so we were able to avoid the hub and spoke uh, to a certain extent. Hub and spoke, you know, in airlines in the U.S. in particular, you see it in Europe where you have a, you go to a major airport, and then you have smaller <coughs> planes that go out to, to the smaller cities, you know. And so the notion was hub and spoke would favor the United States overwhelmingly in terms of future investment coming in to uh, to North America from around the world. In terms of 1993 and uh, 2019, uh, we get the agreement in 19. We changed presidents. Most of the NAFTA agreement was under Bush uh, one, but then Clinton is elected president. Of course, in Canada, you know, Mulroney's gone. Uh, Kim Clark is gone. We're into uh, uh, back to uh, a Liberal government under Jean Chrétien. And so the notion was, well, maybe we're not going to get NAFTA. But, you know, they got together and agreed on some side agreements. Uh, And still it was tough. It was difficult. Here you had Clinton, a Democratic president, and you had Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate. And a majority of those Democrats voted against NAFTA. They voted against NAFTA. But there were enough Republicans that joined in that Clinton could get it through. Now, of course, we're looking at a Democratic majority in the House and a Republican majority in the Senate, and the Democrats can block it if they so decide to do it. They don't like Trump. They don't want to get many victories. And so this complicates things in terms of getting the ratification. Now, for Canada and Mexico, it will probably go through if the U.S. does it. Now, Canada is very adamant uh, and, and understandably saying, we're not going to ratify this unless you end these uh, steel and aluminum um, tariffs that you put on our products under a pretty vague section of, uh, of our uh, trade code uh, that deals with national security. And, you know, everyone thinks that if we do get a NAFTA II ratified by the Congress, that Trump will end it hopefully hopefully with. You know, he's unpredictable. And then it looks like the Canadians would do it. There's an election coming up in Canada this fall. It's not going to be the easiest election for uh, for Trudeau. Uh, there's been some stumbles along the way, but probably, you know, he's got to be favored at this point to, to get a majority, uh, but it's not a done deal yet. And, of course, in Mexico, we just had the election of Amlo, uh, Lopez Obrador, and so he can do whatever he wants. He has a solid majority in, in both chambers of... Uh, of uh, the uh, Mexican Congress so they can do it but they're going to wait on the U.S. and so the big question then, then is will the U.S. do it and I'll I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment okay I think I think that uh, we probably can do like in 1993 some side agreements to get it done we had a side agreement on labor we had a side agreement on uh, environmental uh, standards but uh, Cretien uh, wanted to guarantee that the U- uh, Canada would not have to send on mass huge quantities of fresh water to the U.S. He got that. You know, I think we could probably do that in this case too. Uh, side agreement on labor and also, you know, making sure that each country uh, follows through with, with its commitments in terms of uh, labor protection, increase in labor uh, wages, particularly in the auto sector. Uh, we can do it with environmental as well. Uh, you know, something like that. So it can be done. Uh, and we can learn from 93 and get these uh, side agreements uh, uh, in place if the uh, if the Democratic majority in the House is willing to go along with it. All right. And so we we'll have to see. They're going to have to basically make that calculation. This is going to go on for a few months now. See, there's still a there's still a study being done in Commerce, the International Trade Commission, on the what will be the ramifications of NAFTA II, and that hasn't been released yet. It's going to be released very soon. Then they could go ahead. They can go ahead, and a bipartisan group has gotten together of businesses, agriculture, high tech, to try to convince both the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, Trump supporters and and Pelosi supporters to, to basically do it sometime in, in 2019. We'll just have to see, though. We'll have to see what what's going on. And just this weekend, uh, uh, the Canadian Foreign Minister, Freeland, was in Washington meeting with Nancy Pelosi, basically talking about, well, how can we get through this? So we'll see what happens. Uh, it's very difficult for Democrats to work with uh, with Trump. Trump is pugnation, pugnacious, as you know, and uh, very few people like Trump. Uh, and, uh, but on the other hand, you know, a fair amount of the business community and the agriculture and others are saying, hey, we really need this agreement. Because what uh, Trump has you know, as his, sort of his Trump card, I guess, is saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to abrogate NAFTA, the original NAFTA. It's just going to end. You know, we'll give the six months notice. It's going to end. And so Democrats have to take that into account as well. So they want to put pressure on him. You know, they want to get these side uh, agreements. They want to look like that they've made progress and that uh, Trump has to back off a little bit. But we'll see because you know, we're talking about, as I said, a very volatile personality in the White House. We'll see how he re- reacts. And, of course, there's other issues coming up right away. As you know, he's looking at whether or not there should be special tariffs placed on European uh, auto and auto parts. Uh, exports to the U.S., looking at what we're going to do with China. There's lots of issues out there, a whole lot of issues. And he could be really, really calcintrant. On the other hand, it really does look like he wants to run for re-election. He's very interested in having the stock market do well. doesn't want to shake the boat there, which means that maybe he's going to have to make some concessions in terms of negotiations going on with Beijing, in terms of maybe uh, negotiations going on with Europe. But... There's still a lot of question marks there. Meanwhile, as I said, you know, Canada, <clears throat> Trudeau faces the election coming up. Uh, in Mexico, of course, Lopez Obrador is, you know, he's solid. You know, he's got not only the uh, the presidency but Congress. Uh, he's had a few missteps recently with the gas uh, problems and stuff like that. Uh, and frankly, he's so far has gotten along pretty well with Trump. They don't say much. I mean, Trump just had a press conference that I watched uh, on the back lawn of the White House and mentioned how Mexico's been helping. He couldn't remember the president of Mexico's name, but, uh, you know, I think he even forgot the name of the prime minister of the UK during the same uh, press conference but you know amlo is there he's considered to be you know fairly much to the left and uh fairly much of a nationalist but so far things he hasn't rocked the boat uh, amlo is a very well-read person he's the author of several books you know he's he really is in some ways somewhat uh, quite a uh, almost a scholar uh, and it'll be interesting to see how he view things you know uh, whereas Trump doesn't read very much, and he likes to go by the gut, whatever that means. Um, and he spends a lot of executive time in the White House, and we're not quite sure what that means other than... When I was in the Reagan administration, Reagan basically worked from 9 to 5. But he had a good team. He really had a good team in place to help him, and uh, he, he's a nice guy. Reagan a really nice guy, you know, jovial. Uh, Trump sort of keeps sort of the same schedule, uh, but his backup team is is questionable. He lost his generals. You know they're all gone now, and and some of the replacements we're not quite sure about. And you've got some protectionists there. You've got Miller sitting there in the White House. Uh, you've got the former prof- professor at uh, UC Irvine that's uh, sitting there. That's very much of a protectionist. And we're just not sure that it's not a deep team. It's not a very uh, accomplished team that he has backing him up and he's spending a whole lot of time up in you know his room doing whatever he does up there uh and so you know like i said there's there's question marks we haven't had a president like trump we really haven't it's uh it's very very interesting and i'm sure you'll bring up something in the uh, q a so anyway that's what it looks like uh canada's the number one trade partner uh basically uh what this map shows is a map of the u.s state by state and those dark states there basically they have canada as the number one trading partner for the state and then the light blue line is where it's number two so canada is a very uh, important trade uh, partner for many of the u.s states and most of the u.s states are on board they want nafta too but when it comes to, well, how about the percentage of imports and exports? What I'm showing here is province by province and state by state. Obviously, the Canadian provinces are much more dependent on having access to the U.S. market. You know, this is looking at its percentage of state and provincial GDP. You know, with the exception of Michigan and Vermont up there, you know, most of the states, yeah, Canada is the number one trading partner, but not a whole lot of their exports go to Canada as a percentage of their total exports to the rest of the world. So again, it is different. You know, the Canadians and the Mexicans very much dependent on having access to the U.S. market. Those markets are important to the U.S., but not nearly as much. Not nearly as much if you're looking at uh, percentage of GDP. This shows what China has been doing with the Silk Road, you know, and they have both the land routes and uh, maritime routes. You know, they're... They've been very, very ambitious in terms of what they're doing in comparison to the United States where we're really not doing a whole lot. We've done something with South Korea, but again, the, Trump got some concessions there, We've done some stuff with Brazil, got some concessions there, wants to get uh, NAFTA II in, uh, but you know we haven't been doing nearly as much as China has been doing in trying to solidify economic relations. Now, China's facing some challenges there, there's no doubt, but they've been very much uh, upfront and very vigorous in terms of what they've been doing globally in terms of this Silk Road initiative that goes from Europe all the way over to to Asia and down into parts of Africa right now. Uh, Trump's foreign policy again, as you know, he he talks about America first, make America great again, MAGA. Uh, It has some linkages to the old fortress America, no doubt about that. In his mind, many past US agreements have been terrible uh, started off with fairly good foreign policy team as I mentioned and now they're mostly gone. They're mostly gone. Uh, and in the trade circle, a lot of the good people are gone too. You know, Cohen was pretty good, you know, with a free trader. Mnuchin is there at Treasury, fairly much of a free trader, but you know he's got to take on some of the White House people uh, that are not that much in the way of free traders, as well as the Commerce Secretary, who's not very much of a free trader. Trump is not an expert in foreign policy to say the least. Uh, he does not know much about North America, and nor does he care uh, too much about it. And as I said, no president like Trump in my life. I've been around for a long time and uh, very volatile and unpredictable. And hopefully because he wants to be reelected, maybe he'll sort of uh, rein it in a little bit, uh, but I'm not, I'm not totally convinced of that. Uh, This was a book that uh, Tony mentioned, I did in 2014, and uh, we still have a long ways to go to Renaissance America, I want you to know. Uh, Just a couple of things about it, I talk about the the thesis of the book was we have many strengths, resiliency has been a hallmark, sometimes we get deep down in the valley and we come out of it, we always have been able to do that. And then talking about what's going to happen in the 21st century, you know, the straight line trajectory, say, well, everything's going to Asia, well, not necessarily, you know, it's is much more complicated than that in terms of the power base. Uh, future viability of nation states in a much more complex and interdependent global setting. We're seeing that playing out here in Europe. We're seeing it playing out in North America and elsewhere. And in the book, I try to look for best practices. How do we do better? What can we What can we learn from our private sector? What can we learn from Europe? What can we learn from Asia, Canada, Mexico, et cetera, to, to, uh, to do a better job in the US itself? Uh, the strengths, you know, the laundry list is there. Um, still the largest national economy, actually measured in U.S. dollars. The U.S. GDP now is larger than the EU, even with the U.K. Um, California has a larger economy than the U.K. right now. And the U.K. is the fifth largest economy in the world, measured in nominal GDP. And so, you know, there's lots of things going for the U.S. there, as you can see. But... Uh, Job creation, 100 straight months of jobs being created, uh, probably the best in our history. Uh, unemployment rate down to about uh, the level of 50 years ago. We literally have more job openings right now than we have people looking for jobs in the United States. It's amazing, even though we still have a lot of discouraged people that have not come back yet. Uh, and so, but a lot of things going on there. A lot of things going on there that are our strengths. <clears throat> but then I look at the triple combination in the book, the whole notion of globalization, and unprecedented technology change, looking at AI and other such things, Korea destruction, businesses and jobs. This is causing some problems for Americans. This is causing some problems for Europeans. Back in uh, 2016, in the private sector in the US, notice we created 29.7 million jobs. We lost 27.3, so the net there was about 2.4 million jobs created. But notice the number of jobs that were either created or lost. And that's out of a civilian uh, workforce. Well, in 2018, it was 161 million. That's a lot. You're looking at 57 million jobs that were affected back in uh, 2016 in the uh, private sector. And as I said, the unemployment rate, well, it was 3.9% a month ago. It's now 4.0%, but close to a 50-year <coughs> low. And the, But the participation rate is still in an anemic, less than 63%. Whereas a lot of the loss, believe it or not, is in adult men. Adult men not being active in the uh, workforce. They may be incarcerated. Uh, you know, there may be other reasons, but that's been a big loss. So even though things look really good there, Why don't we have a greater participation of adults in the workforce in the United States? Big question mark that's there. And This one you can hardly see but just talks about the growing connection between the international and the local. Uh, I do a lot of work, as Tony mentioned, on what state and local governments do internationally and and in some cases you know a lot of americans are worried about this you know that they're worried about globalization worried about what they consider to be the negative impact in terms of manufacturing jobs etc and president trump plays that up a lot a lot saying you know globalization has not been very good for us other countries are not treating us very well etc etc uh, u.s manufacturing jobs down about 30 percent since nafta went into effect in 94. why well, basically, a lot of it comes from automation and artificial intelligence uh, applications. That's that's the big one right there. A growing reliance on service sectors away from manufacturing. You know, much of our economy now is service based and not manufacturing based. Supply chains also complicate the notion of jobs and manufacturing within the, within a country. China, uh, you know, a lot of those jobs went to China. Uh, from the 90s onward. There's no doubt about that. We have some pretty good data on that. NAFTA, a little bit. Not much. Not much. And in some ways, what we lost in terms of low-paying jobs came back in terms of higher-paying, value-added jobs into the U.S. So my notion is that NAFTA has not had that much of an impact on manufacturing job loss in the U.S., but you know, President Trump does not believe that. Doesn't believe that at all. Uh, this in the book I get into the 15 domestic fault lines in my current research I'll be revisiting these uh, if in the Q&A you wanted to look at some of these I'd be happy to do that but in healthcare for example why do we spend almost 18% of GDP on healthcare no one spends that you know generally if you, the other nations 12% tops and they cover all the people we don't we have tens of millions of people still that don't have access to healthcare and so it's a you know, we talk about, a lot of Americans say we have the best healthcare system in the world. But my notion is, no, we don't. We really don't. And that takes a huge chunk of GDP. So anyway, I go in and look at all these and try to give some explanations of how we can make it better. How we can make it better, toward, moving towards this quote-unquote renaissance American. Like I said, we still have a long ways to go. But if any of those issues are of interest to you, just bring them up in the Q&A. Uh, government debt is there. Uh, just in the last few days, we passed $22 trillion in our government debt. Uh, when I went into the Reagan administration, we were at about, you know, a little bit more than $1 trillion. So, you know, during that time until now, it's gone up roughly about 22 times uh, in nominal dollar terms. And here we have the economy that looks good. Our unemployment rate is so low. We're creating about 200000 net new jobs every month and still this year we're going to have about a 900 billion dollar deficit and next year we'll probably surpass a trillion dollars again and we'll have a whole series of trillion dollar deficits again that's annual you know deficits why when the economy looks to be so good how come we still have these huge government deficits you know when we go back to the great recession of december 2007 june 2009 you can see maybe you have to go into a deficit in order to uh, basically prime the economy but not now not now but nonetheless you know no one no one is really interested in washington in deficits this is a bipartisan disinterest you know it's neither, neither republicans nor democrats you know trump doesn't talk about it you know how he's got one of the biggest deficits in the history of uh, of US government. Uh so this is, you know, one of the other problems there. How do we how do we break this cycle? This is the typical map of the United States uh, uh with our 50 states. This is a map I do every year. The most recent is 2017 based on US Department of Commerce data as well as uh World Bank data. And basically what I do on this is show states What they produce in terms of their state GDP, and how does it compare to nations? And so, you know, so my state of Utah produced as much as Qatar did, the oil-rich country in the Middle East, in uh, 2017. California was uh, behind Germany and ahead of the UK. And you can see what this shows is there really a lot of dynamism at the state level. And the lowest unemployment rates are not in the bi-coastal states, like California, Florida, or New York. They're really in some of the interior states. You know, in Utah. Utah's landlocked. A lot of it is desert, mountains. And our unemployment rate, I think, is 3.1%. You know, and there's just, there jobs going to begging right now. And the same in Nebraska and other things like this. So it's a very dynamic economy if you get down into the nuts and bolts and get down to the state and local level. And very, you know, these uh, these actors can they they are playing more of a role internationally in terms of trying to do trade deals, investment deals, tourism deals, etc. And this is something that most Americans are not aware of, but I do a fair amount of research on what the state and local governments do internationally. This again is our, our our NAFTA territory. It's a vast area, as you know. Canada's the second largest nation in the world after uh, Russia. Uh, United States is basically tied with uh, about China, with for third uh, in the world. Mexico uh, ranks pretty pretty high as well. Uh, if you're looking at the population, it's getting up close to 500 million people now, and three about 498. So it's not that much smaller than the EU, with the UK a part of the EU. The EU has about 512 million. You know, these three North American countries have about 498. In terms of their combined GDP, uh, (coughs) much larger than the EU right now, much larger uh, than the EU. Um, And so it's an area that we could be doing a whole lot in in terms of uh, strengthening the uh, economic uh, ties, uh, President Trump really does spend time on the borders, as we found in the most recent uh, press conference. And there's no doubt that the border patrol agents have been going up dramatically. Most of them in along the border with Mexico there has been some increase in the border with Canada, and of course this is a big issue now. You know, build that wall. You know, build that wall. And he's going to take that into the 2020 election. And uh, you might want to bring that up in the Q&A, too, and what I think will be the repercussions of that. Uh, and this is Europe in comparison. I'd like to show this because, basically, even with the problems we're having uh, in North America, I'm not quite sure they're as serious as some of the challenges here in Europe. If we look to the east, we look to the south, whatever, and there are lots of challenges in Europe right now. And we just had the Munich conference, which did not go well, um, You know, looking at the strategic outlook for the North Atlantic region. Uh, we just had the meeting on Iran and Poland, that did not go well. Uh, and so there are lots of challenges there. There are lots of challenges internally, there's lots of challenges on the border, lots of challenges in terms of Europe's role in the world, uh, diplomatically, militarily. And so, you know, both, there are lots of challenges in both North, uh, North America and in Europe. These are things that we're going to have to look at as time goes on. Finally, what did I learn as a negotiate, trade negotiator when I was at the office of the U.S. trade representative? <clears throat> I told you what my responsibilities were for. I represent the, I represent the United uh, USTR at it's not a disease as a committee on foreign investment in the U.S., where we're looking at, you know, should we be limiting some direct investment uh, in, uh, in the U.S.? We didn't do much when I was there. We had some behind-the-scenes talks with the Japanese about maybe not putting an in investment there, an import, uh, investment there, but it, we, it was pretty much a paper tiger. It's changing now. And we have one, one target with CFIUS, and that's China. If you look at Huawei and others, we're really looking to tighten up in terms of their investment activity in the U.S. And Some of it is being done behind the scenes, some of it is being done publicly. But anyway, I was our representative there. Uh, I told you about sectoral free trade, weren't able to do it, but eventually became comprehensive free trade with, uh, with the FTA between Canada, the U.S., and then NAFTA. What I found was the Canadians were well prepared for the negotiations. We were not. Now, I'm not telling any tales out of, uh, you know, I, uh, I understand, you know, what my security obligations are there. But they were well prepared for the negotiations when I was there for the sectoral free trade. Not only at the national level, but also at the provincial level, particularly Ontario and Quebec and Alberta, to a lesser extent, British Columbia, very well prepared. We were reacting to their agenda. Very much reacting, and there were some things said in meetings uh, of our team uh, that I, I can't discuss. But some of them were pretty embarrassing because here I was an expert on Canada, and you know, and basically I had to tell them something. So you don't say that, and you certainly don't say it in public. And, uh, and quite frankly, you know, when it came to the the after two negotiations. Uh, We had some functional expertise, but not really a whole lot of expertise vis-a-vis North America. We really could have done better. Um, And I'm afraid that's the way it is for the moment, uh, particularly under the current administration. So our expertise was functional. You know, We could go into a certain area of looking at a certain widget in manufacturing. We had a good functional expertise there. But this would be people coming in that had been negotiating with Japan and then Brazil, and now they were doing Canada. When I was there at USTR, they had no idea of the context—the political, historical, economic context of uh, of our relationship with Canada at the time. And at the end of the day, personal relations were very, very important in getting it done. Uh, because you know Mulroney was about to walk away, and he got on the phone, and you know finally, you know, he, you know, he talked to Jim Baker. They said, We got to get this done. And, you know, President Reagan basically said these were the Shamrock Summit buddies, you know, uh, Reagan and Mulrooney. And, and and Reagan said, Get it done. And he told Baker, Get it done. And so we got it done. So that personal relationship was very important. Very, very important. That does not exist right now. You know, there's no viable personal relationship between Trump and. Uh, uh, Trudeau, or AMLO. You know, it just doesn't exist. Uh, and even at the second tier, there's not much there. Now, the Suno law Kushner's been doing some stuff, particularly with Mexico. He did pretty well with the previous uh, Peña uh, Nieto administration. But, you know, so we're not very deep there. So if we're going to rely on personal relations, we may be in trouble there in terms of getting this NAFTA II finally ratified. A lot of difference between NAFTA and the EU, as you know. All we do in NAFTA is basically free of trade. We do some accommodation for investment, a little bit in terms of the movement of people, but not much. These are professionals, business people that can go into the country for one, two years generally. But it's mostly, you know, commerce, you know, trade and investment. It's a very limited movement of labor across the border. We have some institutions, but they don't compare to what you have in the EU. You know, ours are really not that great. Of course, we have no common currency, uh, whereas you do have the Eurozone, as well as some nations without using the Euro, such as here in the UK. So there's three separate currencies in, uh, in NAFTA. EU is infinitely more complicated than NAFTA. There's no doubt about that. And use in the EU, I guess I can still say EU for the moment, have significant regional integration. NAFTA has very limited economic cooperation. You know, so we we have the largest free trade area in the world in NAFTA. You know, with this huge GDP, with this huge population base, but we don't try to do nearly nearly as much as what you've tried to do in the EU. Uh, you know, there there are a lot of uh, uh, things that are just not similar between the two. All right. This uh, you know, this, this is what we're going to do with the TPP. And <clears throat> the reason why I put this in again was to show you how important Canada and Mexico is to the U.S. in terms of the trade relations. Notice that Japan there among the, the, the potential TPP members was was there as third, but far far behind Canada and Mexico in terms of importance to the U.S. as as trading partners. And so the issue in perspective, you know, a lot of what comes in from Mexico. Uh, and uh, value-added goods actually have a lot of U.S. content, which President Trump never talks about. Already has a lot of U.S. content, maybe assembled in Mexico, some uh, value-added there, but then shipped back to U.S. And same with Canada. Same with Canada. So when we look at, you know, he's very uh, obsessed by deficits. But if you're looking at, well, what's coming in? How How much of it already has U.S. content? Then things look a whole lot better you know, in terms of having a balanced uh, trading relationship with our two partners to the north and south. Mexico will not not that long long a time in the future become a top 10 global economy. You know, it ranks number uh, 15th now in terms of GDP, 10th in terms of population. Canada uh, in 2017 was the 10th largest economy in the world with only 37 million people. Uh, we're an energy giant, as I mentioned, believe it or not, and even though this gets into the, uh, to the controversy about fracking, uh, the U.S. has become the largest oil producer in the world again. And some months the largest producer of natural gas in the world again. All of a sudden, here we had these huge imports coming in. We still have a fair amount of imports, but not like in the past because of what's going on in the Permian Basin in Texas, up in uh, the Dakotas, what's going on in Pennsylvania. Amazing, amazing uh, what has been produced there and so, and Canada has a lot of potential, Mexico does too. You know, if uh, AMLO can do something about reforming Pemex, that would really help Mexico a lot. And so this is a major energy giant that we're looking at in North America. Supply chains add to international competitiveness, although President Trump doesn't recognize it. I'm interested in deficits. Well, how about the supply chains and what's being contributed by your suppliers or your uh, basically uh, your subsidiaries overseas? He doesn't take that into account. U.S. Chamber of Commerce thinks that there are 14 million U.S. jobs dependent on linkages to Canada and Mexico. That's a lot. 14 million. And we've had a fourfold uh, increase in trade in North America since NAFTA much more than U.S. trade with the rest of the world in terms of percentage increases. And um, this is a very interesting one. Uh, The latest latest figures we have, I'm looking to get 2018. But in 2017, U.S. exports to uh, Canada were about equal to U.S. exports to the entire European Union. There was a $1 billion difference. So here you had as many U.S. exports going to Canada with 37 million people as to the EU with 512 million. Now part of that, you know, there may be a little double counting in terms you've got things crossing the border, like in the auto sector, and then, you know some of that is counted twice, you know. But but overall, you can see how important and U.S. exports uh, to Canada greater than exports to China, Japan, and the U.K. combined. So this is an important relationship. And sometimes I don't think the United States and the Trump administration takes the relationship seriously enough. Uh, So basically that's what I have. We'll look at 2019 to see if it's finally ratified. If it gets through the U.S. uh, Congress, it has to be a majority vote in both chambers. This is under what we call the Fast Track or the Trade Promotion Authority. Uh, If it gets through, then I I think the Canadian... Uh, Parliament and the Mexican Congress will go ahead with it. Uh, we may have these side agreements, you know, a little bit on environment, a little bit on labor protection, stuff like that, but uh, it can be done, but a lot is now dependent on the Democrats, you know, in the House of Representatives. Are they willing to give some, and, and basically have to swallow hard because this will be viewed by Trump as his great victory. Look what I did. Got rid of the worst agreement in the world to the best agreement in the world. Now I got it. You know, that's hard for the Democrats to stomach. But a lot will go on uh, during 2019. Some say it may go on to 2020. Of course, that gets you into a presidential election year. In fact, we're already into a presidential election year. Believe it or not, uh, we're within a year of the first caucuses in Iowa. One year. And starting in May, there are going to be presidential debates. And uh, CNN (coughs) is basically saying, well... We'll, we'll allow 20 Democrats <laughs> to be in the debate, you know, based on, well, do you get 1% of support from, uh, from the polls? and Have you raised so much money from so many people? But we're already there. These debates will begin in May. We've got the former governor of uh, Massachusetts that said he's going to, Republican governor, says he's going to uh, challenge uh, Trump uh, during the primaries. The governor, governor Weld is sort of, you know, he's, he, you know, I don't think he's totally serious, but if you get Kasich from Ohio getting in there, you've got uh, Hogan from Maryland, the governor of Maryland's talk about uh, challenging Trump. Uh, we'll have to see how that works out. Uh, but for the moment, it looks like Trump will get the nomination of the Republicans. We'll see, something can happen because you go back to a similar stage uh, uh, back in uh, you know uh, 2015, it looked like that Hillary Clinton was gonna win. She's gonna win going away, and who had ever heard of, uh, or going back excuse me, uh, prior to that to uh, to 2008, who had ever heard of Barack Obama? He you know, hadn't even finished his first term as a senator and from Illinois. So a lot of things can happen in the meantime but it's going to be a very, very interesting presidential campaign. And with that, let me stop and take your questions. Well, thank you very much.
2: Thank
3: cool. you. As always, very up-to-date and expert and uh, analysis. Um, like that. First of all. sure Hi there. Uh, Zach Taken from the University of Kent. I'm an assistant lecturer there in international relations and from Toronto originally. Good. Uh, so uh, the uh, basically the the most controversial and, and central concern in, in Canada following the uh, adoption of the USMCA deal has been surrounding section 32 concerning Uh, the ability or limitations placed on Canada, or specifically Canada, uh, but technically applying to any one of the three parties to the new deal to pursue a free trade agreement with a so-called non-market economy. So this is a clause that is pretty much clearly directed against China. And many people will come back and sort of say, well, that's not such a big deal because there was already in the previous deal the ability for any party to withdraw on six months' notice, and so this doesn't change that fact. This new clause also mentions the ability to, to withdraw they don't like the deal that they, that they see uh, negotiated with China. But I'm wondering if you could, based on your knowledge of Canadian trading uh, opportunities and Canadian trade history and the like, whether or not you think that this poses a significant challenge uh, for China for Canada to be able actually to pursue trade liberalization and perhaps a free trade agreement at some point with China down the road. I know this might take some time, uh, you know, but uh, basically over the, over the long term whether or not you think that Canada has basically... Completely hitched its wagon right now to a North American type blocker, whether the possibility for diversification in Canadian trade actually uh, exists, which is something that, of course, they've been pursuing for, for quite some time. And I guess on a, on a side note, um, if my a chance you'd be able to expand a little bit more on uh, what you mentioned a little bit towards the end of your presentation on the idea of further uh, cooperation and integration and trade mobilization in North America, whether or not there are going to be any obstacles to that. So, do you see? tariffs placed on aluminum and steel to be taken off anytime soon? Do you think that there's any possibility that we could see cooperation genuinely in the energy sector to turn North America into a genuine uh, energy superpower based on the fact that energy is a provincial responsibility according to the, to the Canadian constitution? So the challenges there. Can we see a, a joint North American strategy visiting China? Um, speculate, please. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'll speculate. The, the first one, I did bring that up in an editorial uh, a while back. Uh, I think it may be there, depending on how obstinate Trump wants to be. Uh, I don't, for the moment, consider it to be a serious challenge. Okay, and of course, if Trump is a one-term president, then I think it goes away. I really do. You know, and of course, the Canadians are giving any indica- every indication if they want to do something with China, they're going to go ahead and do it, even though we know that there's some problems now underway uh, as we go back to Huawei. You know, other things like that. So yeah, it's po- possibility because, as I said, <coughs> an unpredictable president. But hopefully, it will be put on the back burner. Yeah, hopefully. As for the aluminum and the steel, I wish that was off. That were you know those tariffs were off already. I don't know what he's thinking. You know, uh, but maybe he's waiting until the ratification, and then would we'll take him off. He better take him off. I mean, uh, both. Uh, Freeland and, and Trudeau have said there's not going to be any ratification of NAFTA 2 unless the aluminum and steel uh, surcharges are off off the table. They
3: also said they wouldn't
1: sign the deal as well. As, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's all they can say. And <clears throat> as I said, I'm not quite sure why he's being so obstinate because the auto industry is against it. A lot of the manufacturing is against it. In the U.S., you know, so, I mean, there's a lot. He's getting a whole lot of pressure, even from farmers, uh, on the issue, tell him, know, you know, knock this off. You know, we don't need this because uh, it's just adding to our costs in terms of buying machinery and stuff like that. And I don't know what's going on in his head there. You know, they got to come off at some point, whether it's after he leaves office or uh, when we do get the final ratification coming out of the U.S. Congress. But you're, you're right. And, you know, if we can get a, do away with some things like that, then in terms of the energy sector, you know, there's a whole lot that we can be doing. Uh, Pena Nieto, of course, wanted to modernize PEMEX, was willing to allow more foreign direct investment to go in. We we'll have to see about Amlo. Amlo, you know, has talked about. He wants more, more Mexican control over the energy sector. But as I said, for the moment, he's been really quite pragmatic. Can I say that? You know, as I said, a r- really quite a brilliant man politically. You know, he's. If you look at his history, he's got he's taken on some very interesting issues. So we're not quite sure how that will turn out. Uh, but in terms of Canada of course when it comes to energy you know you have your own problems with pipelines and, you know stuff like that and uh, as Alberta is losing business in the us uh, the fracking in the us is you know gaining a lot of the business and you know a lot of that oil even coming out of Alberta, Alberta still has to go down to the Gulf Coast uh, coast to be uh, refined and so i 'm hoping for better i 'm hoping for better but I understand there's some uh, some obstacles there. And I think that once the Trump administration is over, maybe things will get a little easier, but there'll still be some challenges there. So we'll see, you know, we'll see uh, what happens. And obviously, you know, what am I saying? Uh, I gotta be fair about this. Uh, I'd never thought that Trump, I mean, I gave some lectures in Europe on, I never thought Trump would get the Republican nomination. I never thought Trump would be president of the United States. I'm hoping he will not be reelected, you know, but I watched his news conference the other day and, as he kept on about the wall and, you know, keeping out the rapists and keeping out the gangsters and keeping out the illicit drugs and that. I said, darn it, you know, that's going to play well to some of the Midwestern states. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, he doesn't have a chance to win, does he? Uh, but a lot of that, of course, depends on who the Democrats put up because you've got a fair number of, quote unquote, progressive Democrats sitting there and they have some good ideas. But if they push too hard, too fast for some issues like universal Medicare, you know, uh, uh, which I feel that we need to do down the line uh, and, uh, you know, the, the green plan for uh, for an environment and energy and that. Uh, that may turn off some of these rather cautious voters as well so it's not just trump trump's got his track record he's lost some he just had an article in the new york times saying that you know about five percent of the republicans that voted for uh, romney did not vote for trump in 2016. five percent of them that voted for romney voted for uh, hillary clinton in 2016. he said he's losing you know young people he's losing women He's losing minorities, and you would think, hey, he can't win. How can he win? You know, the, Democrats, uh, the demographics are working against him. But, on the other hand, it all depends on the electoral college. Remember, our votes don't count directly in the United States. They all go to this electoral college, which was set up by the founding fathers, in part because they didn't trust the average American who was relatively uneducated and didn't own property. And the Electoral College favors the smaller states. You know, I mean, Wyoming gets three votes in Electoral College. It doesn't even have a million people. California gets, what, 55. It has 40 million people. You know, based on a voter percentage, there's greater clout in Wyoming than in California these days. And if you just were to, if you were able to change 80,000 total votes in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in 2016, Hillary Clinton would have won in the Electoral College. But you still have to watch out for the Electoral College because Hillary Clinton would win by over 3 million popular votes. And the Democrat in 2020 could win easily the popular votes. But you still worry about what's going to happen in the Electoral College. And I'm worried. I'm still worried about it. I think how in the world can he, you know, he's the most unpopular president in recent history. Over 50% say they would never vote for the man. Uh, but he, his core is there. 80 to 90% of Republicans are sticking with Trump through thick and thin. They, that core is still there. And as I said, if the Democrats sort of, you know, go too far, maybe to the left on this particular election and talk about issues that say, well, you know, the American people say, that's going to be too costly. We're going to it too quickly. What are you going to do about my private insurance coverage, health insurance? Lots of question marks there. And so... I guess what I 'm saying things will get better once trump's gone in terms of, I think, North American relations, uh, but we'll see I'd, I'd hate to think that we 'll have four more years <laughs> of having to go through this. But thanks for the question.
0: I'm right, no? OK. Fine.
2: Well, the one and only thing we do know for sure is that Trump won't be president of the United States six years from now. That's true. Whereas Trudeau might still be president, uh, prime minister of Canada, and uh, Orbital president of Mexico. Um, and I have a hunch that they might just bide their time until Trump is finally gone. He saw some of the Considering how long it took the, uh, the first NAFTA agreement to be ratified and implemented, I think they could easily six years, uh, pardon the term, but, I
1: think but would you have not NAFTA two go into effect during that period? Sorry? Would you have the new NAFTA I, agreement I going? I
2: suspect through? not, but I'm, you're the expert. Yeah. I, I, that's just a speculation on my part, but I did have a question about the border. Uh, you mentioned that the U.S.-Canada border has become much more hard use the current term in the year, certainly since 9-11, I would imagine. I'm just wondering in practical terms if you could comment on the the implication of having a
1: wall with Mexico and a hard border with, with Canada. Very good. Well the the uh, former governor of Wisconsin once called for a wall with Canada as well and he was a border state. Uh, the General Accounting Office says that the US is basically now now controls about a little bit more than one percent of the border with Canada <laughs> in terms of having it under proper surveillance. Uh, it's it's the largest border in the world. You know, it's 5,500 miles long when you include the border between V.C. Uh, uh, and Yukon and Alaska. You know, this is a huge border. And so, yeah, you're right. You know, we've, we're doing, uh, we're spending more money, not nearly as much as we spend on the southern border. But fortunately, it hasn't become that much of an issue. Uh, there are some committees, or excuse me, some reports in Congress, or uh, and in the administration, it basically argued that the threat from terrorism is actually greater coming from Canada than from the U.S. We have had some, you know, we had the one terrorist that came from uh, Montreal, origins from Algeria, you know, and he was going to blow up L.A. International. I don't think it was ever feasible, but he was caught, you know, and so people always point to that. And some of the the t- uh, terrorists, uh, alleged terrorists, in, uh, caught in Ontario and that and so some argue that the, the border risk is actually greater with Canada than with Mexico. Uh, but so far, that fortunately has been on the back, back burner. You know, and uh, I guess something could happen that could uh, bring it up. But, uh, Trump's not talking that much about you know, building a wall with Canada. He's, he's, he's focusing on that southern wall. He does feel that that uh, uh, solidifies his base. But of course, that base is not enough to elect him But it does solidify a space where he he basically, you know, know, fear-mongering. We can't have these people coming up, all these drugs coming up, and having uh, uh, innocent Americans killed by undocumented aliens and all these uh, drugs coming up and killing Americans or maiming Americans. And he he hopes to, you know, broaden support by doing that. So overall, fortunately, yes, we're spending billions of dollars on that northern border now. Uh, but if you want to walk across, you can walk across. You know, you, there's a whole lot of forest area there that you could walk across, or you could just go from the Yukon into Alaska and fly out of Anchorage. And you know, there's lots of ways you could do it. Uh, but fortunately, it's not that much of an issue for the moment. It's all focused on the border with Mexico. And uh, as for what you're saying there about uh, NAFTA, Mexico and Canada, I believe behind the scenes would be willing to not have NAFTA to. Uh, ratified if NAFTA stays in effect, but as I said, that's Trump's whole card. Saying, "Well, if, if Congress is not going to do it, and he's talking about the House of Representatives here, then I'm just going to abrogate NAFTA." And, they, and the Canadians and the Mexicans don't want that. So lots of, you know, lots of issues there, uh, and you don't want to fall back on the WTO, you know, and and so it's. Uh, Something's going to happen, I think. But I think you're right in terms of waiting out Trump. I think that's what the Europeans are doing too. You know, you know, say nice things to his face uh, when you can. Uh, but understand, this is a very frustrating experience. Uh, and as I said, there's a lot of frustration in North America as well, uh, echoing what's going on in uh, in Europe right now. But you know, you may be right. You know, you live until you, know, you get through the hopefully just one term and then you take a, you know, and then a sigh of relief and say, maybe we can move on. Although a lot of speculation now going on, particularly in Europe saying that, you know, uh, Trump is not a cause, but a symptom of some of the transatlantic uh, difficulties, feeling that there's a growing um, growing movement in the United States to move away from Europe. Uh, I'm not buying into that. Uh, the one thing that happened at the Munich conference, even though you had Pence there, you know, talking about things by giving the party line, you had 50 Democrats and Republicans from Congress that came to Munich to basically say, things are going to get better. Behind the scenes, they were, these are members of Congress and not just all Democrats coming. Say Things will get better. We missed John McCain. You know, John McCain was sort of the anchor of the Munich Security Conference. Uh, but, you know, they're basically saying things will get back more toward normal. And sure, we're going to lose some ground, but hopefully in the in the post-Trump period, uh, things will improve rather significantly, even though we may not go quite back to what it was before he became president. But it's a good good comment uh, on your part. I, I understand what you're saying there. Okay. Oh, a couple there. Uh,
0: one more go first.
4: Uh, how does this uh, agreement, uh, how does it deal with, like, environmental and stuff? You mentioned, like, the Green New Deal. Um, I would imagine, like, this would, uh, when it comes time to uh, you know, go through Congress, that, that these uh, progressives would want to see how
1: this... Exactly, you're right on that. And, of course, you know, Trump was the one that backed off of the Paris Climate uh, Agreement, and, and he's been as about as skeptical as anyone could be about uh, climate change. Uh, but uh, that's something that the Democrats are going to push for, and the big question is how far can they push You know, on, in this side agreement? <clears throat> Will the Trump administration be willing to give up a little bit there in order to get the uh, NAFTA-2 passed? And that's going to be one of the big uh, negotiating points because there's no doubt that you know the Democrats are saying that not enough was done in terms of environmental protection in North America. Uh, and uh, with the back, you know, the, uh, the back story being that Trump is so skeptical about climate change and stuff like that, they say we've got to reinforce this in, in NAFTA too. And uh, so they're going to push. And will the Trump people be willing to give in a little bit? Or will at least enough members of the, uh, of the uh, Republicans in the House be willing to do that? Now, remember, you know, we're talking about Democrats being opposed to NAFTA, too. There's some Republicans that are opposed to it, too. Uh, like uh, the, the senator from Pennsylvania, me who's saying that, uh, you know, he's not happy that Chapter 11 has been taken off. You know, he says that's bad for U.S. corporations. And so there's some Republicans also not happy with NAFTA, too. But in the whole, I think he can get it through the Senate. And uh, if they can cobble together enough Democrats... Uh, with probably a few Republicans, maybe they can do it, but you're absolutely right about the environmental issue. That's a side agreement that the progressives are going to say, we've got to do something on that, and what will be the response coming from the administration? Big issue.
0: Big issue. Thank you, uh, thank you.
4: Yeah, Just a comment about the northern border. Uh, I, I think Trump really needs to worry about the beavers coming across. Uh, I, I think they were imported someplace in South sort of, America and they really ran, caused havoc in whatever area they took over. So I think there's that concern uh, of the, uh, the beaver attack uh, from the north. But um, with respect to um, trade, and I'm just wondering whether this is really just a small blip or not, uh, with a number of When you consider that a lot of Trump supporters and what their socioeconomic status is, the impact of the natural disasters that keep hitting the US year after year and the effect on rebuilding their own homes kind of a thing. Do you see that as an issue at all uh, impacting on on the Trump supporters with if Certain tariffs come in, the increased costs for all these sort of building supplies that go into mm-hmm. that, that hit the individual on a really personal level at your local Home Depot or Costco mm-hmm. or something. Wondering sort of if that's just a little blimp that doesn't really count. Well,
1: the uh, agricultural sector is certainly, you know, saying, that, "Hey, we're getting hit hard." You know, not only are we losing some markets overseas, but you know we need the machinery coming in, and now it's more expensive because of these tariffs. And that. you can go back to the old days of the softwood lumber dispute. You know, and that added a couple three thousand dollars to the to the cost of building a home in the U.S. At least a lot of the homes that use the softwood lumber. And so you know it's there as an issue. And you know he, he says he's you know he's President Tariff, he's Mister Tariff. You know, a lot of people are looking and said, well, that's having a negative impact on my pocketbook. Uh, it may have some, probably a little effect uh, in 2020. You know, whether it be the environmental uh, problems that we're facing or the tariff issues, but it's there. Uh, and I don't think, in the long run, it helps him in terms of garnering support. But so, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see about uh, that. You know, it's a. As I said, you know, there's. Uh, it's been a long time since we've had such an unpopular president. Now. Bush, too, wasn't was uh, wasn't very popular in Europe or in Canada. That had to do with, you know, particularly with Iraq and that. But uh, there's more deep-seated uh, uh, concern about Trump and contempt, quite frankly, among rank-and-file people, you know, in Canada, Mexico. Uh, obviously, in the United States, you know, his, his disapproval ratings have not been seen for a long, long time, uh, even though he got a bounce after the State of the Union address. So it's... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see. You know, he's basically saying, ah, you know, you get a climate problem, it's just, it's just nature doing its thing, this is not climate change. And, you know, that will last him through 2020, I guess, uh, among his faithful. So it's, a, like I said, interesting times. Very interesting times. And we'll see what happens.
0: Okay, well, I think if there are any other questions, I'll just use Chairman's property to ask the last question, which is to take it back to Canada. Uh, and um, personal relationships, as you say, are important in politics. They're so not everything, but they are important. And one gets the impression, both from the media and just looking at the body language, of Trump and Trudeau in public, even the signing of an NAFTA too, their relationship does seem to have sunk to quite a low. Um, and from the political point of view, uh, although, the Canadian election coming up in October, Trudeau would have to be careful not to uh, alienate the kind of business vote and so on. I imagine he wins a few votes just by tweaking Trump's nose as one of the few world statesmen who is uh, accidentally or not being prepared to do that. So how do you see the Trump-Trudeau personal relationship?
1: Uh, well, you know, uh, Trudeau started off at the beginning of the Trump administration trying to be, basically be the good guy, you know, wanted to be his friend, you know, and that didn't work. And and face it, you know, Trump is really nasty uh, towards a lot of our traditional allied leaders and uh, Trudeau's no exception to getting that criticism. So I think you're right. I think he'll do a steady, uh, what he'll do is, is basically, you know, be standoffish towards Trump and, Canadians will understand that Trudeau is frustrated with Trump. He would like to see NAFTA, too, go into effect, though, and he feels that will help his electoral chances, because anything that uh, um, moves against that, particularly if Trump were to move to abrogate the original NAFTA, would, uh, would certainly cause injury to Canada's economy. And you know some of the Canadian voters may blame Trudeau for part of that, even though you know, it really wasn't wouldn't be his fault. So I think you're right. There will be a fine line there. Basically saying, you yeah, know, well, we got to live with this guy, but we understand you understand that some of our policies are not in harmony with his policy by any stretch of the imagination, and that's the way it's going to be for the the Canadians and. Uh, you know, a lot of Americans who oppose Trump think that, you know, Canada's been one of the good guys in the world. You know, they're, Canada's doing what the U.S. should be doing, uh, you know, multilateral uh, cooperation and stuff like that. In Mexico, you know, we're not quite, quite sure about AMLO. Do we have anyone from Mexico here by chance? I was just wondering uh, if you, you came from – because like I said, his, his heritage is really far to the left. He's the, he's the most leftist president that Mexico has, has elected in generations. You know, we went through 1929 to 2000 having one party. It was a PRI, so it was a one-party state in Mexico in that period. Then you get the PAN come in for two administrations, 12 years, and they were conservative, relatively. And now you get to you going off with this new Morena movement, which is leftist, only recently put together, sort of like you know Macron's new movement in, in France, you know, new party and uh, it would be interesting to see how Amwell because uh, uh, like i said this is a guy i imagine he has his, his own share of disagreements with trump personally uh, policy wise it'd be interesting to see how the two uh, the two partners the canadians and the mexicans play it at least through the ratification process but uh, in terms of uh, trudeau i think you're right most of canadians understand his frustration with trump agree with trudeau on that but still hoping that maybe we'll get the agreement through at the end of the day, particularly prior to the uh, fall elections.
2: And isn't the name Almo worryingly close to Alamo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: we got we, yeah. got we have some very interesting personalities in North America right now. Excellent. Well thank you very much again, you Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much.